The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, folks. Welcome to Psych Up Live. Thanks for joining me again, and welcome to those who are joining Psych Up Live for the first time. If you are lucky enough to be the parent, teacher, or grandparent of a little one, then you have been lucky enough to witness tantrums in the aisles of supermarkets, at the holiday dinner, at your little one's birthday, at other children's birthdays. What are tantrums? What causes them? Can they be prevented? We are so fortunate to have as our guest today, Dr. Rebecca Schrag-Hirschberg. She's a psychologist and the author of an invaluable new book, The Tempa Tantrum Survival Guide. Tune in to your toddler's mind and your own to calm the craziness and make family fun again. Dr. Hirschberg has been up close and personal to tantrums. She has her own two little sons, and she's the founder of Little House Call Psychological Services, which specializes in helping kids and parents with common early childhood challenges. She has taught in the Department of Pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, has published widely, and has been quoted extensively in print and online. Dr. Rebecca Schrag Hirschberg, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm I'm so happy to be here today and so appreciative of the opportunity. Okay. You know, Rebecca, as you say in your book, we all know what a tantrum looks like, but let's expand our understanding a little. How would you, you're the expert, define tantrums? Yeah, I think that the definition of a tantrum is actually simpler than many people think. It's it's really misunderstood. A tantrum is really just, quite simply, a behavioral expression of feelings that are overwhelming. Um, so when someone, it doesn't have to be a child, or the, although frequently it is, has really, really big feelings and they kind of act them out behaviorally, that is what a tantrum is at its core. Okay, so are tantrums normal then for children? They are. That's the that's the bad news. When you said you're lucky enough to to have seen tantrums in your introduction, I kind of smiled because I don't know how how lucky that feels <laughs> to most parents. Um, but yeah, they're completely normal. They are expected. They are actually quite helpful for kids who are kind of forging their developmental path. Um, they are something that almost every toddler or child expresses in some way or another, although certainly the, the details around them can look different. Now, as much as you may know your little one, parents are often mystified as to why one little brother's moving one of the Paw Patrol figures to the other place on the rug, as you describe causes a complete meltdown 
or why it is that we were having such a good time with grandma and all of a sudden we have another meltdown. One of the things you say is to really understand it, really we have to invite parents to look at many factors in the context of what's going on. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. And when you said the thing about Paw Patrol just now, I said, wait a second, that sounds that sounds like my kids. And then I yes. said, you got it from the book. <laughs> no, no, I also have a little, some little fans of Paw Patrol. So I got it. <laughs> yes, no, excellent. It's, it's universal. Um, so... Yeah, a lot of a lot of parents come to me and they say, you know, they just have a tantrum out of the blue or their mood seems to shift out of the blue. And that's certainly how it can look in the moment that just from one second to the next, it's either seemingly from nothing or seemingly from something very, very small. And I think when we look at at tantrums, we have to look at the immediate um causes of a tantrum, but also step back and look at some of the contextual factors. So certainly you could say in that case that that tantrum was caused, let's say, by the little child, the little sibling moving the Paw Patrol figure on the rug. However, we also have to step back and think about the kind of day that the child has had. Is the child hungry? Is the child tired? Is it the end of the day? Is the sibling in a new phase where he or she is touching the child stuff all the time? Um, is the mom or the dad who's there or the grandparent in a bad mood? And that has kind of set the energy of the interaction. Um, there, you sort of have to look at very proximal causes as well as constantly expand the lens and look at more distal causes. And those can be general too. Like, is there a child, let's say, who has a speech and language delay um, and and they're having more tantrums than usual because their expressive or their receptive language isn't where it needs to be. And I, I know that you also talk about things like, is the child in a situation where the expectations are completely inappropriate for that age child in that situation? Right. Right. I was so, it, oh, for, I'm sorry to, to interrupt. No, go, no, go right ahead. Um, so, for example, although in that situation, if all you knew was that this child, you know, freaked out when his brother, let's say, to, to bring it home to my own two kids, <laughs> moved his Paw Patrol figure, you would say, well, that's not a developmentally inappropriate expectation. But if you found out that it was six o'clock and that the child had been taken on five different errands that day and it was raining and he hadn't eaten in three hours and he was being expected to play, let's say, nicely and calmly on the floor while waiting for dinner to be ready, that might suddenly shift to a place where you say, you know what, that is a developmentally inappropriate expectation. So it can be, it can be general or it can be specific to a situation where if you actually back up and think about the demand that you're placing on a particular child at a particular time, you may be expecting too much. My, fa- my favorite expectation story is I was in a wallpaper store. I Not the most interesting store, these giant books, everything looks the same. And a couple came in with a little one. He was probably barely three, and he was carrying what was a brand new toy, a box with fire engines and little men. And I thought to myself, oh, these people are brilliant. Um, This is really going to entertain him while they go through these books. Mm -hmm. And then the little one put it down, sat down. I heard the father say, 
you can't open that up here. And I thought, what? <laughs> I had to control myself from saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You had a great option here. Great thing going. I, Rebecca, I had to leave the store. I, I just could not watch this. But there, and, and, you know, they were, they meant well, they bought it. But there's no way you can do that to someone. So, you know, sometimes we're, we're, what are we thinking? We all do things like that. But the expectations can really be really very difficult. And, and the appropriate thing was for the child to have a meltdown. Right. Now, I love the concept of the ABC that comes out of um, behavioral studies. Maybe we could put that out as a way to further understand tantrums. Yeah, so ABC is an acronym that um, that comes out of actually a lot of studies having to do with uh, children that have more severe developmental disabilities, but it certainly applies to um, neurotypically developing children as well. The A stands for antecedent, the B stands for behavior, and the C stands for consequence. So it's basically a, a fancy way of kind of saying in order to understand a tantrum, which is the behavior in question, you also need to understand the antecedent, so what came before the tantrum, and the consequence, so what came after the tantrum. And so the most common example of where that C becomes particularly important is when kids are somehow rewarded for their tantrum behavior. Um, and parents, you know, parents may wonder why their child is having so many tantrums, but after I speak with them and do an observation, I'll realize, well, the, the tantrum behaviors actually work for this child. You know, this child actually gets what he or she wants, whether that's something concrete or, which I think is actually more common, kind of a lot of attention and focus when they're having the tantrum. And so we won't understand in that case where the behavior is coming from or how to make it more manageable unless we understand that consequence and we shift that consequence in a meaningful way. So what would an example be if a parent wanted to self-reflect and ask, whoa, am I actually creating the tantrums in some way that I'm not aware of? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and there's a, there's a couple different things I would I think in that case you know invite parents to be curious about. One is, um, are they in a and and I should just preface that everything I say on this show is without judgment <laughs> because the situations that I describe are so common. Um, right, I myself have given into them, um, and. I, I'm speaking about more of them when, when they're really a trend or a pattern in a home that they become problematic. So I just want to want to preface with that. But I think I think parents can kind of inadvertently um, reinforce tantrums or kind of cause them in two primary ways. The first is by giving in repeatedly. Again, not that one time that you hadn't slept for three nights and your kid had a fever and blah, blah, blah. But over and over again... Um, saying, for example, saying no to something, saying, no, you can't watch another TV show or um, no, you can't have more than one cookie. Um, And then the child starts throwing a tantrum and then you don't know what else to do and say, okay, fine, here, you know, here's this thing that you want. Um, I think when parents do that over time, kids learn a very clear lesson, which is that sometimes this works. And when it works enough, 
they're going to do it over and over again. It's like it's like playing a slot machine. If it works even, you know, once in a while, but in an unpredictable way, why not give it a shot every time? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and then the second thing that I think, and, 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 and giving in, it's interesting, it can be either, as I said, with the, with the concrete request that the child has, but it also, and this happens particularly in families with more than one child, when it gives them a lot of attention. So a child, let's say, starts having a, a tantrum that they're not getting another cookie, and you may not give them the cookie, but you drop everything to kind of be with them in that moment. So you're not paying attention to the sibling, you're not paying attention to your phone, you've stopped doing whatever other multitasking you're doing and you're really, even if it feels to you like it's a negative interaction, you're still giving the child what he or she often wants most of all, which is undivided you time. One way or another, they're getting a response that is reinforcing to the the, uh, behavior. Yeah, and I and I a, a quick point there, and then I want to say the other the other way that parents reinforce tantrums. But um, something that people don't often know that is is very helpful to them is that kids are different from adult. Parents will say to me like, "How can that be reinforcing for my child? I was I was yelling at them. I'm not proud of it, but I was yelling at them." And little children would rather negative attention than no attention at all. So as adults. We, everybody wants positive attention, right? If I go into my job and my boss tells me that I'm doing a fantastic job, that's obviously my first choice. But then most adults would rather kind of fly under the radar than be chastised for doing poorly or or having a poor performance at work. And with children, those two are reversed. So flying under the radar, not being noticed, is actually the worst outcome. And they will choose getting quote unquote in trouble or scolded or even yelled at before that. And so that's, mm-hmm. how, that's, that's, that's a helpful way I've found for, for families to think about that. Um, the second, the second big way I think that, that families or parents can reinforce tantrums is by failing to recognize that a tantrum is both, um, content-based, so a child, let's say, wants a particular thing, but also a child really wants their feelings to be recognized. Um, And that's true with adults, too. You know, if I have a really, really bad day, for example, Suzanne, and I'm telling you, you know, Suzanne, you should have heard about what happened to me yesterday. You know, I got stuck in terrible traffic, and then I had, um, you know, a client be really mean to me, and then I got a ticket for where I parked because I was in such a rush. And I'm sort of upset about that. And if you say to me something like, oh, well, at least today is a new day. You know, <laughs> you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat that story louder. I'm going to move forward. My heartbeat's going to go up. Right? I'm going to say, no, no, Suzanne, maybe you didn't hear the part about how I got a ticket. Right? right. I'm going to really amplify because you don't get me. And so I have to show you how I'm feeling in an even stronger way. And that's what happens when parents inadvertently say things to kids like, oh, come on, you already had a cookie. You know, this isn't a big deal. Well, to the kid, it is a big deal. And so they're actually going to show you even more in that moment. Yeah, no, if you don't think this is a big deal, I need to up the ante because this is a huge deal. And now I'm screaming and crying, A, because I didn't get my cookie, but B, because the person who's my number one person in the whole wide world doesn't get me 
doesn't mm-hmm. get what's important to me. And that's really isolating. And so, wow, here come more tears and more frustration. You know, what? picking up right on that, one example you gave in the book, actually a few times that I think I would miss, many people would miss, is that sometimes it was a situation where the dad, the little boy wanted the dad to bring him to school. Mm-hmm. And the dad... <clears throat> This is so typical and human of all of us. Instead of responding to the child and let, uh, in terms of, wow, I can appreciate you're disappointed. We do like driving in the car together. The dad, in good faith, said, I'm sorry, I have to go to work. I wish I didn't have to. In good faith, the dad stayed focused on his feelings and dilemma, as you point out in the book, and missed, in some way, validating the child's pain about this. Yeah, yeah. Because it's common. Go ahead. It well, No, it's so, I mean, as a mom, I'll, I'll put on my mom hat and my these hats are constantly interchanging, but it's really hard to watch our kids be upset. I mean, we are, we have the best of intentions. You know, the example that I gave before was, was, you know, perhaps dismissive, right? When you say that's not a big deal, but sometimes it's, um, you know, let's say a child is building a block tower and it all comes crashing down and we jump in to say, um, oh, come on, it's not a big deal. We can rebuild it. It's fine. Because we don't like seeing our kid disappointed or upset. But actually, and this is what can be a little counterintuitive, the tantrum will get better and your child will learn more resiliency if you let them have that feeling. If you say, yeah, you were just building a really, really high tower and working so hard and it fell down and it seems like you're really disappointed about that. Now, you want to keep it right size. You're not going to you're not going to then, you know, be like, oh, sweetie, that's so awful. Let's take out. <laughs> right. like that. You know, you, you also need to kind of guide them through coping. But but simply ignoring kind of their negative feelings to, to dwell on the bright side. I mean, if you've ever had that done to you, it's it's not particularly helpful. Right. Rebecca, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, I want our listeners to know we're going to be talking about what about when a couple disagrees on what giving in is and what um, taking a different position with her tantrums um, means, as well as suggestions for how to manage tantrums. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with our guest expert, Dr. Rebecca Schrag Hirschberg, psychologist, mother of two little ones, and the author of the new book, The Temper Tantrum Survival Guide. Tune into your toddler's mind and your own to calm the craziness and make family fun again. Stay with us. We have a lot more to speak about. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. There are many people who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. 
Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Very sure has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Schrag-Hirschberg, her new book, The Tantrum Survival Guide. Rebecca, we were speaking about parents looking closer at their behavior in the sense that all of us inadvertently sometimes create or fuel the temper tantrum. Now, I know you visit children and parents in their homes. They come to your office. Because I deal with so many couples, the question I'm raising is, so they're at a fair with their little ones and they agree that everybody can have ice cream. But as we proceed, there's a booth that's selling cotton candy. Now we want cotton candy. Now dad's ready to give in and mom's saying, wait a minute, look at how much sugar they had. You know how crazy they're going to get with the sugar. Why would you want to give them cotton candy now? And the fight goes on. And the, sh- the, the cotton candy wins out. They get it. They get crazy. And it's, an, it's another round of, you know, sugar craziness. Uh, if these parents well, can't and this you, and say that that's, all, that the sh- <laughs> completely off topic, that the sugar effect actually all seems to be placebo. Just right. as an unrelated point. Yeah, that, it, that it's more about parental expectations of sugar. But that's probably true. Another time. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. No, that's good for our folks to know. Yeah, You're saying it's much more in the behavior of the parents than in the actual sugar in the cotton candy that is causing the disarray in the little ones and the fight in the adults. Yeah, all of the randomized controlled studies show that when you replace sugar with some sort of placebo, parents can't tell the difference and they assume that their kid's behavior is is off the rails even when the child has had placebo. Now, there's a chance that there's other um, chemicals and dyes and whatnot that they haven't been able to study as robustly. But specifically when it comes to sugar, I feel like a very good public service announcement and one I give my clients is... I'm not saying go ahead and give your kids a ton of sugar. There's certainly health concerns, but from a behavioral standpoint, there's no correlation. Okay. Now, what do you suggest the parents do? Do you have any interventions you do when you see one afraid to not give in to the kids and the other trying to hold the line? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I see that all the time. Um, I mean, that's an incredibly common scenario. And again, I think it's important to point out that the goal is not to not to never have situations like that. Um, They're back, you know, you and your partner in two parent families are are different. Right. And and, and there are going to be some occasions on which you disagree. And it's okay for your kids to see that the problem becomes when, again, there's that inconsistency over time. And particularly when you end up, which is when families make their way to see me. Um, in like a good cop, bad cop scenario where, where, you know, for example, to follow on your anecdote, mom feels like she's always towing the line and dad is like a third child, you know, that, that dynamic. Um, Right. And I think my, there's a, there's a few ways that I take it. One is in a deeper kind of um, psychological way, which we don't, have to talk about in depth, but but I really do try to get into with parents a little bit about, frankly, their own childhoods and what what did giving in look like from their parents. And it, for example, in that scenario, is dad is dad really does dad have a really difficult time when his kids are disappointed? And what's that about? You know, a, mm-hmm. a lot of times parents have a really hard time tolerating their kids' distress, even though distress is kind of part of life. Or maybe in that case, dad feels like he's always at work and doesn't want to be the one that, you know, there, there's so many deeper dynamics there that I often think merit exploring and at least creating in parents um, an understanding and compassion around where the other is coming from. And then right. I, once, once, once some of those deeper issues are explored, then there's the space to talk about kind of strategies and it, and it often involves, um, Practicing, you know, practicing not only, you know, practicing before you end up in a situation saying that, you know, okay, on Saturday morning, whatever you guys end up doing, dad needs to be the one to enforce a consequence and mom is not allowed to do that, right? So it, it one partner, in order for one partner to step up, the other has to step back, right? A lot of times it comes to light that that's actually the hard part, you know? Mm-hmm. You have to trust the person that you're co-parenting with. Um, mm. And a lot of the conversations have to happen on the front end. Who do we want our kids to be? What, you know, what, what are the values that are important in our home? What are the big, no- is sugar a big no in our home? Is sugar something that we really feel strongly about, in which case we're going to come up with a rule around it that we're not going to stray from? Or is sugar not necessarily that big a thing in our home? And so 
if we happen to disagree in a particular moment, one of us can just let it go. Okay. Um, and communicating around those issues, which is a ton of what I do in my practice, is really talking through some of these common issues and, again, figuring out on a deeper level the personal and interpersonal dynamics and then on a surface level, what what are what does your family look like? What do you want it to look like? What are the values? What are the expectations? When are things important and when can you let them go in a more... Um, in a more intentional and not just, you know, spur of the moment way. Thanks. Wonderful. Let's just take a minute because I know people worry. And as you say in the book, everybody gets a little bit worried when there's a lot of tantruming. Everybody thinks, even though you point out it very rarely is more than 90 seconds long, it feels like it's five hours. Um, (laughs) Everyone's insisting that the whole world has watched it and judged them as a parent. But one of the things that you did list were some red flags that might indicate you and your child may need more help than you can just do at home. And I wonder if you could list some of those flags so our listeners have a sense of when they really need to seek some help for their little one and for themselves. Yeah, that's a great question and one that so many parents have. And I think the word that I want to highlight that you said is the word might, that these red flags are really suggestions that there might be something else going on um, and that and that professional assessment would be beneficial um, because sometimes when I talk about these red flags you know parents all say oh yes my kid does that and yes my kid does that and you know they're they're not meant to be it's not a formula whereby if your child does this then we know there's a real problem and you better start freaking out now <laughs> um, so the first thing is aggression Um, toward either people or things. Now, I really want to delineate. There is some aggression that's normal. Um, Hitting is a completely common behavior by kids between, you know, eight months and five years. Um, Biting is common with some kids too. But if your child is biting a lot or pulling hair or scratching or picking up things that can break. We're not talking about their toys, but, you know, and throwing them. And again, real aggression with these tantrums, that can be a red flag. Um, the, the second red flag is, is a corollary of that, and that's self-injury. Um, self-injury basically meaning aggression to self. Now, there are kids who learn, and this is why the ABCs are important, just to reflect back on that, the antecedent behavior and consequence, There are kids who learn very early on that if they want something and they're being told no and they have a tantrum and, for example, they start banging their head against the wall, their parent will come running and meet their need. And that as soon as you interrupt that consequence, that behavior stops. So, again, there's some self-injury that you really need to look at the context to know if it's problematic. But then there's self-injury like really scratching oneself, scratching one's face. Um, biting the skin, that sort of thing that is cause for for concern. Um, Frequency, um, so how often your child is having a tantrum. Um, And I really encourage parents, if they're concerned, to track this because, again, it feels like they're happening all the time. But actually, if if you track 
if you track a tantrum, it, it, it rarely is that it's, you know, happening all the time. Um, it's been shown that there tends to be a correlation um, between kids who have, and I'll just give these numbers as a, as a framework, if kids have 10 to 20 discrete tantrum episodes on separate days at home um, during a 30-day period, or more than five tantrums per day on multiple days during school or outside of the home or school, that might be cause for concern. And, and again, I want to highlight concern doesn't mean anything more than going to a mental health professional who can help parse why this is happening. It may be, for example, that your child has an undiagnosed you know, speech delay, and after a few sessions of speech therapy, this goes down. So this isn't cause for concern, oh my gosh, my child has a psychiatric diagnosis and is doomed for the rest of his life. This is just cause for thinking that there might be something additional to just a developmentally normal behavior. Um, the fourth is duration. So how long it lasts. Um, most tantrums last between about a minute and a half and five minutes. And again, I would encourage parents that are concerned about this to take out a stopwatch or the timer on your cell phone because it can feel like forever, but it's actually four minutes. Um, if tantrums are regularly 25 to 30 minutes, that may be cause for concern. And I can hear it now because I, I have clients in my office, oh my gosh, the the tantrum that, that little Tommy had last week was 45 minutes. And it really was. And and that's where you say, right, and that's why you remember it, right? It was his tantrum that was 45 minutes. It was hell. <laughs> Usually when our kids have doozies, we remember them. The point is that if those doozies are happening much more frequently such that we can't distinguish them in our minds, that is potentially a need for assessment. And then the last one is an inability to self-soothe. So your child is experiencing some emotion and a tantrum may be frustration, but it can also be anxiety or sadness or anger. It can stem from any kind of big, uncomfortable feeling and they, and they can't, and they can't get themselves out of it um, without a high degree of intervention or being fully removed from the situation. Again, not that one time you're thinking of, <laughs> but over and over and over again. Mm. Okay, that's that's so helpful. Rebecca, let's talk about the some of the ways you can reduce tantrums um, or manage them, as you use that word, by what you say the power of planning and predictability. Yeah, so a lot of kids at the ages that, that tantrums occur, which is, you know, 18 months to five, although certainly they can start earlier and, and later. And um, we can all think of adults <laughs> who have their share of tantrums. Right. Um, but um, typically kids of that age are learning about the world and learning about themselves and learning about relationships. And it all feels potentially overwhelming to them. And when kids are overwhelmed by their feelings, that's when the tantrums happen. And so one way of decreasing that overwhelm is letting kids know what's happening when, you know, what or what a particular environment is going to look like. Um, at one point in the book, when I talk about, um, you know, occasions and, and settings that can be particularly challenging for parents, I mentioned um, big family dinners, you know, that it always seems like when your in-laws are there, you know, that's when your kid loses it. Um, and, and part of that is about 
you know, they, they only have, let's say, family dinner with the whole extended family once or twice a year. And if you spend some time on the front end um, explaining, you know, we're going to this person's house and this is how long it's going to take in the car. And then we're going to see this person, this person, and this person. And I bet we'll have some time to play. And then we'll have some time, you know, and you can show them pictures of the people that will be there. And, you know, in that way, kids are less likely to feel overwhelmed and more likely to be able to manage their emotions. And similarly, day to day, that's the reason why people emphasize the importance of having predictability around, let's say, meal times or nap times or bedtime routines the point is not that I'm sorry. Just the point is not that you're in a that you're running a a, a military school or the, or that you can prepare your child for every obstacle that comes his or her way. Right? That's all the attention that's getting to whatever they're calling it, snowplow parenting or lawnmower parenting. Right? You're, you, you, it's certainly not the case that you can predict everything coming down the pike. But to the extent you can help with that, and and allow your child to feel like he or she has some agency, some ability to control the world around them, then then tantrums can be minimized. Uh, you give some great examples in the book, and I've heard now some very good examples from young parents. In one family with multiples, there's a lot of little ones. There's pictures, there's arrows, to the point where the dad who packs all the backpacks every night well, when he was waiting on the bus stop for them to come off, they all came off yelling at him, Dad, you forgot to pack the snacks. And it means they know he does it. It's such a routine. And in some ways to me, I thought, well, what a great corroboration of the fact that this is something they know that happens. Okay, that day it didn't happen. But that's the kind of thing you seem to mention over and over. I told the story that from your book to someone who was startled because her niece was having a similar problem, which is, who's bringing me to school today? And it wasn't that the child was crying because she didn't want to be with daddy. It's that, as you describe it, she didn't know who was going to be there. And once the parents start posting a picture on the refrigerator of who it was, things calmed down. And when they didn't know, when they posted the question mark, and then it became a guessing game, it was wonderful. And so she came back to say, you know, Sue, they tried the picture and the question mark, and it really was terrific. So I wanted you to know that I passed that along, but I think it really supports the idea that just like adults, but maybe even more importantly, little ones need to know what comes next. It really does build a sense of um, security and predictability. We're going to take a break. We have many more examples to share with our listeners. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're with Dr. Rebecca Schrag-Hirschberg, psychologist, mother of two little ones, and the author of a new invaluable book. The book is great, funny, informational, terrific book, The Tantrum Survival Guide. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com There are many innocent people who were found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? 
Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests, which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune into All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. We're back. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Hirschberg. Her expertise is Little Ones, her new book, The Tantrum Survival Guide. Rebecca, I and let me just say this to our listeners. The book is so interesting and actually so enjoyable to read. And Rebecca is so humble that throughout it, she'll say, trust me, I know what it means to have a day of tantrums. I just spent the day in the airport. Throughout it, you hear her as a professional, but you also hear her as a mother. And you're going to hear now some of the wonderful other strategies that you find in this book. It's loaded with understanding children's behavior and also guidelines for parents. Rebecca, maybe share some of your favorite um, guidelines and sort of um, points of reference in terms of really helping parents with tantrum behavior and in general helping childhood as you say be more fun they're the magic years we don't want to miss them yeah so thank you for your for your kind words sue i um the the book that's exactly how i intended the book to come across so i'm really glad that it landed that way i think that the two overarching guidelines which i talk about in the book um that are easy to remember i call them the two l's Love and limits. And we talked a little bit in the last segment for those who were listening about limits. We didn't call them that explicitly, but we talked about the importance of structure and predictability. And in a sense, that's those things are limits. They are ways of limiting our little peoples in our lives, our little kids' worlds. 
um, on the other side of that, there's love. Now, love is an obvious thing that, you know, we all love our kids and that doesn't necessarily help with a tantrum in the moment. But what I mean more specifically is thinking about are there ways in particular tantrum-prone settings or environments or at tantrum-prone times where you can connect with your child, right? Where your instinct might be to start seeing your child as an adversary. I think that happens a lot. There's a great acronym that I did not make up called Q-TIP, quit taking it personally. <laughs> That's um, great. Yeah, it, it's, it's something that happens a lot. If you're, let's say, in the dessert aisle at the supermarket and your child starts throwing a tantrum over, you know, wanting to buy something that you don't want to buy and parents end up feeling like other people are looking at them or other um Somehow your child is doing this on purpose. I I mean, people attribute, and again, that's a time to kind of look at your own background and see where some of that might come from. But in the moment when you have that instinct, it can be so powerful to do the opposite and connect with your kid. We talked about one way of doing that, which is to validate their feelings. Yeah, it would be awesome to buy the Oreo cookies, but we're not going to. Um, You can take that further. You know, you can play with it a little bit. You know, yeah, I know you want the Oreo cookies. What if we could buy anything in this whole lot? Let's say we could buy 50, 100 million thousand things. What would we get? We get this and this and this and this. And then, you know, or maybe you make up a song about it or you say, um, okay, well now, you know, we're not going to get the Oreos, but let's have a contest because we actually need to find the apples. Let's see who can find them first, you or me. Turning things into games and turning things into playful moments and moments of humor when you might otherwise find yourself getting really agitated with your child and then distancing from them can be an incredibly helpful way to think about how to manage some of these more difficult moments. One of the things that in the old days people used to say is when the phone rings and you get on the phone, your kids go crazy. Well, now think of the fact that well, we all have phones everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think another another thing to consider is that you save yourself a lot of pain if you decide that when you are with your child, if you can hold off on responding to that phone, unless it's a sh- an emergency, they really feel they have your attention and the chances of them, whether you're in the store or at home, are of being, you know, tantruming and melting down is likely to drop. I think that's true. Absolutely. Or yeah. if you need to take out your phone, to simply say that you're doing it and why. Yes. Uh, you know, yeah. I have an exercise with that I do with some clients, which is that unless you can explain to your kid why you're taking out your phone, don't take out your phone. And that might be as simple as, I, you know, you're allowed to say, I need a quick break. <laughs> I'm going to take out your phone. But you have to be able to kind of say what the reason is in a way that you're okay with. I think that's a wonderful idea because to say I'm calling grandma now, I'm going to ask what cookie she wants us to or whatever it happens to be. That's that's a wonderful thing. One of the things that um, Rebecca mentions and you mentioned it now, she has even made up some songs with her kids. And I have found through the years with my children, with my grandchildren, that it's amazing that when things are going off the rails, that if you start singing a song they like and you know and everyone knows Music has a wonderful impact on regulation, and uh, that's something, certainly, if you love songs, and some of them are even on your phone that that you and your children love, that's a good reason to use your phone. One of the things that 
you also mentioned that I, that I thought was so important was since we're not perfect and since it's likely we're going to miss the step and create more problems or really in, enhance the tantrum that we're trying to reduce, you talk about repairing and reflecting the rupture that might have happened with you and a little one. Maybe you can give us an example of how to do that. Yeah, so I just want to say one quick thing about music first, because it reminds me when you're talking about music, which is that sometimes I'll turn on music that I want to listen to when I'm noticing that I'm getting super frustrated with my kids. Um, I think in the book I mentioned Van Morrison, uh, Into the Mystic, just because I can't listen to that song without kind of calming down and smiling. Nice, nice. Um, and sometimes, and, and sometimes, and I rem- I was on a podcast, and and the host said to me, so sometimes when your kid is having a tantrum, you just take out your phone and put on Into the Mystic, and I just said, uh huh. That's You know what I talk a lot about in the book is that, and this ties into your current question, is that tantrums are interactions. They really require the participant of kind of both people to escalate, and so. Since you don't have control over your child, you do have control over yourself. And if you can regulate your own emotions in a moment, then that will help you be able to just sort of bring the charge of the whole situation down. Um, And that may be listening to music. And that I talk a lot about the power of a pause. Can you just pause for, you know, your kid may be having a meltdown, but it's not actually a crisis. If you can pause for three seconds and just think for a moment or regulate yourself for a moment and you know then you can actually respond in a calm and intentional way Um, and some of that takes practice the the idea of rupture and repair goes goes way back into attachment theory and a ton of of psychological science showing that um, most parents are not in sync with their kids more than the best parents, let's put it this way, the best parents are in sync with their kids only 30% of the time. Meaning that about 70% of the time they're kind of missing each other and finding their way back. And that actually the relationship grows and deepens in terms of how you handle those ruptures. Um, A rupture is basically when there's a tantrum or you get frustrated or you yell at your kid um, or your kid storms away and says, I hate you. All these things that can happen in any given day, what do you do afterwards? How do you repair it? And it may be that it's a quote-unquote formal repair where you apologize and you hug and you talk about what happened, or it may be something really quick. Um, the, the example that I give in the book, which I will never forget, is that the at one point I was really frustrated with Henry, with my older son at dinner. And I don't remember why, of course, but I was really getting irritated with him. And, and he ended up knocking his milk glass um, and then catching it so that it didn't spill. And completely unintentional. I was just so impressed. Like it was such a slick <laughs> move, you know. And so I just smiled and I said, nice move, buddy. And he sort of smiled and went back to eating. And that was a rupture and a repair. You know, they can be kind of seamless and, and they don't have to necessarily be formal or intentional. But I think it's important that they be formal or intentional after there's a deep rupture and one of, that you may regret, for example, about how you acted. Um, and that happens a lot because, as you said, you're a parent and you're imperfect. And, you know, welcome to the welcome to the gig. 
Um, you know, Rebecca, at one point you say, um, if a, par- a parent has asked you, shouldn't children be s- somewhat afraid of their parent? And I just loved your answer that, no, they need to feel safe and accepted and loved. And that there's tremendous power in that, far more power than them feeling frightened. Yeah. And I think it's important to validate the temptation, though, you know, because it's real. If our kids were afraid of us, the day-to-day would probably be a lot easier. And I think a lot of parents remember that sort of thing from their own childhood. And I think that's real. The problem is that, again, there's abundant research showing that once you get into long-term outcomes, it is not at all a healthy way to be um, for kids or for parents or for their, you know, relationship. Mm. So, Rebecca, if you were to give our listeners a take-home message, I mean, you've given them so many wonderful ideas. What take-home message could you give our listeners? Oh, wow. Um, I would say, and there's a school bus outside my home, so you may be picking up that noise, but it's all part of everyday parenting. Um, I would say, I would say... That nobody's perfect, you know, to be gentle on yourselves, that there's no one right way to do things. I, I would I would say that I would say that no one moment is so important that it's going to make or break your kid or make or break your parenting. And I see that all the time when parents, you know, I gave in and I shouldn't have given in or I didn't give in and I should have given it, you know, all the second guessing. And all you can do is make a decision and then move on, right? It's a, the parenting is a series of choice points, and we make those choices in a really imperfect way. But the most important thing is our relationship with our kids. Um, right. And that front and center, that's what's going to win out. Wonderful. Now, how can our listeners find you online, find the book? So my website is littlehousecalls, all one word, littlehousecalls.com. That's my practice as well as my partner, Allison Locker. Um, And we are in the New York City area and Westchester. And the book, there's a link to the book on that website, um, as well as my contact information. There's also, it's very easy to find the book. It's on Amazon. It's on barnesandnoble.com. It's at Guilford. The book is published by Guilford, so the Guilford Press website. Um, it, if you Google it, it will come up in whatever way you want to get it. <laughs> okay. Uh, Rebecca, I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live. Your work, your expertise with children, and your wonderful book all serve to help us, help parents embrace those years that seem so trying but are really magical. And so I want to thank you for the contribution of your book and for being our guest today. Thank you. It It was really my pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior pod show as a podcast by 6 p.m. Eastern. This show will be a podcast on my host site, on the podcast app of your iPhones, on the podcast app of iTunes, on Skechers, Spotify. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. And until next week. Please take care, enjoy your little ones, and be listening. 
Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.